0: Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week we ask, what has been the role of global tech companies during the war in Ukraine, and is better regulation needed? Hello, my name is Emily McTernan, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and the Department of Political Science at University College London. Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year has created Europe's largest refugee crisis in a generation and caused major disruption to the world's economy and energy systems. In Ukraine itself, civilian life has been transformed and in many cases destroyed by the conflict. One notable dimension of the war has been the intervention of major tech companies, including Facebook, Google and SpaceX. Through multiple rapid responses, they have successfully inhibited Russia's information warfare strategy. These steps include a targeted digital blockade of Russia and ensuring Ukraine's internet infrastructure is protected from online and offline attacks. A new report published by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change analyzes what tech companies have done, explores implications for power and democracy, and makes recommendations for how both states and tech companies should change their approach. One of the authors, Dr Melanie Garson, is both Cyber Policy Lead and Acting Director of the Internet Policy Unit at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and Associate Professor in Conflict Resolution and International Security in the UCL Department of Political Science. And I'm delighted that she joins me now. Welcome Melanie to Uncovering Politics. Hi Emily, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Let's start with a brief explanation of the topic at hand if we can. What kinds of companies are we talking about here? And why are they playing a role in the Ukraine conflicts to begin with?
1: So generally, and the focus of this paper looks at the companies that exist throughout the internet stack. And what I mean by that is the companies that have a hand in supporting communications from the very subsea cables that help support the internet, all the way up to the information that runs on the internet, and as we've seen, up to the satellite, up to space to help support the communication systems. So that involves uh, everything from when we think about, usually, we think about people like the big platforms, but so. Facebook and Google, because we think about the information element of it, but that also includes companies that are more structural, such as uh, content uh, distribution networks, uh, people like Fastly and Cloudflare, and we're also thinking about the companies providing fundamental cybersecurity like Microsoft, as well as Google and others.
0: Fabulous, and and you call them global or big tech, so... So where are these companies based? Why do we call them global?
1: Well, because they are a large proportion of them. We have become familiar with them being uh, largely US-based. But in today's day and age, they operate with big presence all over the world and with a hand in being able to respond to crises very quickly all over the world. Great.
0: And our listeners will have seen images on the news of bombings and deaths in Ukraine. Access to the internet might seem relatively trivial in light of such horrific suffering. You might ask, why should we care if people can or can't access their Facebook, or even about Russian propaganda online? Could you explain to our listeners why it matters who has control over cyberspace?
1: Uh, Well, access to the internet or communications infrastructure is critical in in any campaign. So access to communications infrastructure is a fundamental part of command and control, as well as cutting off communications before any kind of invasion uh, is a part of that element of surprise. Now, why it became particularly important uh, in this conflict is because there's certain aspects of how we live today and how we interact uh, with uh, the internet today that could take away or give one party another an advantage. A good example of that would be geolocation data. So if we're providing information, for instance, where people are running to hide, or if that information can be accessed where people are running to hide from a particular bombing, then that information could actually be used by the other side to actually target their bombing more effectively. So one of the things that happened quite early on in the war is Google shifted and turned off a lot of mapping data for people in Ukraine so they couldn't be targeted. So this becomes part of a much bigger picture of how the Conflict can play out in today's day and age. So the UK, it's not just about the information, and it's not just about the kind of uh, propaganda or information warfare that we can see, but also where in the dissemination of information. Another example would be right at the beginning of the conflict, uh, one of the First things that happened on the 24th of February, it, Microsoft had to uh, defend against a cyber attack on a Ukraine uh, government systems. Now, those government systems were important for distributing information to citizens. So, this is where it all becomes part of a completely new sort of interface or expanding surface uh, that becomes part of warfare.
0: Thank you for those fantastic examples. Is this a phenomenon that's arisen in Ukraine, or have these companies played a significant role in other conflicts in recent years? Is this the sort of modern face of warfare? We're going to see a lot more of this from now on, or is this actually something that's been more of a feature of warfare and other conflicts in the
1: past? Well, in this one has been in the most extreme uh, context. So we've seen the intervention of. tech companies in geopolitical crises for better and for worse. And the one that usually jumps to people's mind at the outset was uh, Facebook in Myanmar and what happened uh, in, with, uh, the, whether they were complicit in the genocide of Rohingya people for allowing information to flow that could have possibly, well um, it was then sort of claimed that this assisted in, being able to identify and target and rile up the hate against the Rohingya people. So that's on the other side. We also have on um, uh, Starlink previously. So that's uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk. Starlink is coming in previously to help in Tonga when the subsea cable was severed and there was no internet available and providing satellite communications to try and bridge that gap. Bearing in mind that. Our entire livelihoods and the way that we live today and as countries roll out to increase digitalization, whether that's digitalization of health records or being able to access social security. If the internet goes down, then life as people know it for a lot goes down very quickly. Great. Thank you for those examples. We've
0: got Microsoft defending the Ukraine government's uh, systems. We've got the mapping data being turned off on for relevant parties. I wondered if we could also discuss a little bit the kinds of offensive measures that have been taken against Russia so far and what the effects of those actions have been. So perhaps you could talk us through a digital blockade and what's involved in that.
1: Yeah, well, the, I mean, and the digital blockade, it's, it's a lot involved. So rather than being offensive, it's a lot more like deterrence by denial or denying a lot of Russia's strategic ambitions. So another good example of that is where we have new assets that could become Targets. So, again, going to, into Microsoft, who have been particularly active, they moved, so going back to thinking about digitalization and how many of our records are fundamental to our, our government providing public services. Um, the, um, Sorry about that, Emily. <laughs> just, um, so, going back to these um, uh, government providing public services... Uh, Microsoft moved a huge amount of all the data assets that were sitting in data centers in Ukraine out into the cloud outside the country, partly so it doesn't fall into uh, Russia's hands and can be misused, but also so the government can keep on functioning, so if anything were to happen to those data centers. But there's also been from, obviously we've seen on the other side, a huge exit from tech companies from Russia, and that's with the now some didn't automatically go voluntarily. there was incremental bans from some of the t- to towards some of the tech companies because of the argument over provision of information. what's interesting about that that created a lot of tension for some tech companies who wanted to be able to still provide access to information to Russians. But either because of bans or because of the sanctions regime needed to exit. And this was where we saw some real creative uh, thinking from some tech companies. For instance, uh, Cloudflare providing VPNs, virtual private networks free to Russians so that they can bypass the blocks and be able to access information of their choice freely. Great. So it sounds like it's, it's it seems very
0: important then to keep Russian civilians online and make sure they're having access to a range of information sources as well as their own government me- uh, media. Is that the kinds of things you're thinking about? The ways in
1: which tech companies can enable us? So um, they- 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 and Absolutely. And they've enabled by doing things that they haven't done before, like particularly some of the platforms, suddenly hopping onto the dark web and having a dark web mirror site so that again, that would be something that was accessible uh, through a different mechanism so people can have information. Because on the other side, I think Russians were then going back to short to shortwave radio they were actually going back to old tech and people were digging out their radios and there was an increase of broadcasting for things like that had really scaled down like from the bbc sort of upping their radio service so that information or free information flow could uh, be out there because of the bans and the blocks on most of the platforms. A few stayed in, YouTube has still been allowed to operate because uh, there would be probably wide-scale mutiny uh, if it wasn't able to operate.
0: Great, that's fascinating. Um, and so you say they're not offensive measures, you said. You're seeing these as very much kind of... You, you, you rejected the idea that there were offensive measures being taken against Russia thus far.
1: I right. think it's, a, it's not necessarily that offensive. So a lot of time when we think about offensive, then it's sort of people's mind jump and think, okay, are these companies conducting cyber attacks? Or are they, and that, that's absolutely not what it is. I think what it is, is that the, absolute, the confidence or the coordination in effect, and not necessarily actually, it wasn't even a coordinated response, but the amalgamation of all these responses of tech companies have actually tipped the balance of power and that the balance of power has enabled Ukraine's offensive it's sort of a slightly different because they've been able to Create this strategic blockade so they've been able to weaken Russia's attempts at cyber attacks through providing defense because they've been able to bring in measures. So, Google sort of recalibrated how Google search works so that people had access to information like how to hide or where to flee. There was a lot of sort of what were the most popular search terms and how did uh, that operate. Because of these sort of confluence of all these actions then that has lessened Russia's success in their campaign and by the same token enabled Ukraine to really sort of rebalance uh, what they were at the outset, the much weaker power people thought.
0: Fascinating. And one of the examples you raise in the paper is the case of Facebook initially permitting hate speech, I believe, against the Russians encouraging a violence and then changing its mind. So it sounds like these tech companies have been a bit vulnerable to pushback from the Russian government or change their minds about some of the policies they've tried out in this conflict. Could you talk us through that and,
1: and how you think that should have been
0: navigated?
1: I think this is one of the really interesting things, and it's one of the things we talk about in this paper that we were tracking, is that obviously you have tech companies making decisions that they have never really had to make uh, under extreme pressure. And and sometimes they're getting it wrong. Now Facebook was particularly under the spotlight because of what happened in Myanmar. And you get caught in these tensions of free speech arguments, something we're going to see uh very much with the sort of the Twitter buyout. And so at the outset it was said, Well You can't have the free flowing hate speech, and at the same time, they were saying where people are allowed freedom of expression, particularly people in Ukraine, to to express their horror and their dissent and their general feelings about what was happening to them. And Russia, then, of course, said this was fueling hate speech, and Facebook was, uh, and eventually, Instagram kicked out. Of Russia, but it creates, but what they've done is it's bounded. So you can only express those feelings about Russians if you're actually geographically located in Ukraine. So it's not, it's create, there are boundaries on where that's actually allowed and where it's sort of, otherwise it's sort of cracked down on. Now that brings us into a whole nother realm of the challenges for content moderation as a whole with these big tech companies that it's an interesting area of where policy is being made on the fly and one of the Things we call for in this paper is actually if tech companies are going to have these roles, if they're going to be so influential and integral in these geopolitical crises, that they need to be able to have thought these things out in advance and have a transparency, a transparent process of how they're going to calibrate their interventions. Because this is, and Facebook must admit out to the companies have the ones that did set up A sort of a geopolitical crisis board, um, or a crisis board to deal with this situation, but more and more tech companies are going to have to have that clarity because are they going to intervene in every conflict in this way? If not, how are they going to pick and choose? And what happens if it's a civil conflict inside one country? How are they going to decide what their decision making is for their presence in that particular conflict?
0: That leads us really nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is very much about the the way that we're going to regulate or support tech companies in these interventions and how this is going to look. So in the paper, I take it, there's there's suggestion that the international community will support tech companies and that tech companies will form more consistent and perhaps transparent ways of formulating policy when they go into conflicts. But I was wondering, you might worry, should unelected tech companies have such an influence on conflicts and crises, so you might think why frame the issue in terms of support for tech companies from the international community rather than asking how should the international community be regulating and controlling tech companies' actions in wars, determining the appropriate ways to intervene. One might worry very much about who these tech companies are accountable to, whether there should be some kind of systematic oversight by states. So I guess over to you. You should be thinking of this in terms of regulating and controlling tech company rather than generally supporting them as they make their own policies about what they're going to do when faced with a
1: conflict. I think there's two elements and I think and this isn't a sort of a call to say there should be no regulation of tech companies and there's obviously a need across the board and already is on thinking about how tech companies need to be regulated both on whether that's anti-competitive practices or whether that is on the questions of content moderation and online safety and where they have to fall in with sort of global standards or national standards that are uh, for the good of uh, sort of humanity or individual nations. I think that aside, I think what we're seeing today is that tech companies in these situations, and when we look at how the tech companies are very much consolidating through the internet stack now. So we have commercial representation at the satellite level all the way down to the subsea cable so they as well as the provision of hardware as and information flow will provide good provision throughout the whole of the internet as we have it. Now, what that has meant, and as commercial entities, they've been able to be a lot more agile, come in a lot more quickly than governments would usually be able to in these situations. And uh, subsequently, governments do come into partnership with them, but they've been able to act super quickly. And, And that is something that should be harnessed for to say global good if we can do it but and to do that it has to be some level of greater partnership rather than just regulation so that as i say it's a it's a little bit of both, and that means enabling tech companies and certainly, and not just the massive ones because what we do have is we have like, particularly on the content distribution network, you have smaller companies that can have a massive impact. A company like Fastly, that if they go out, some of the global internet goes out for hours and hours and hours if uh, if there's a blip in their provision service. So it's about making sure that companies can sometimes be part of these conversations so both countries know how they're going to act and also that conversation as are they going too far or where can they be part of uh, making sure that what the global community is trying to achieve is aligned as well because you're right these are commercial companies with commercial incentives but a lot of them actually and this is and this is what's interesting if you read a lot of the accounts why they intervene. A lot of the CEO's statements was about their moral obligation, their feeling. And that's wonderful. <laughs> they're not saying that a company shouldn't have moral obligation and feeling. But it's also trying to get the consistency of that. Because then if they're picking and choosing according to individual moral obligation, that is destabilizing on the overall system. Great. So we're looking
0: for consistency. Is that consistency of particular tech companies or consistency amongst the tech companies? So you're predictable what Meta or Facebook were going to do every time and predictable, but different what Google is going to do every time. Or are you thinking that very much the tech companies as a whole need to have a consistent approach? Um,
1: It's a little bit of both. And actually, we talk about that. in the paper so there's both consistency within and we talk about whether there should be um some sort of board where the tech companies or some sort of forum where they can have that exchange of information where they can work together when you know if there's uh, somebody notices um either a blip in outage and think of who's the best place to, so that not, you know, you also don't want wasted resources. You've got a huge amount of resources, so how can that be worked between them to have an even distribution, if you want, of contribution as well? But also within the relationship with the global community and how they're acting, because you also don't want necessarily their action to undermine efforts either. A good example of that might be, and there's a question about this, when the sanctions regime came in, the tech companies, a lot of many of them, did a mass, mass exit, some of them above and beyond what was required of the sanctions regime. Now, that's an interesting situation, depending on how you feel that sanctions should be operated. But if you feel that sanctions are best operated as a slow turn of a screw, if you want, that you take a little bit and then you apply more pressure and you apply more pressure. A mass exit could actually derail what you're trying to achieve to some extent. A mass exit of all the tech companies means that Russia goes looks elsewhere, likely to China to plug their supply chain gap so then are you losing some of the balance and control in the system and these are all sort of questions that still need to be unpacked a little bit more
0: great thank you for that's very helpful I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about what you what the paper suggests states should do and the international community should do so so what kind of steps have already been taken by states what's the appropriate level of investment and what should happen next so what's what's the idea about the ways in which the state should, the state um, yeah. uh, Concretely support these tech companies. So they're going to have more consistent board, policies, boards where they can discuss with each other, make sure that they're not acting in ways that conflict with each other unhelpfully. What do states do in the, in the international community?
1: Well, I think at the first point, and it's not, you know, it's not just about the tech company. At the first point, states need to recognize the fundamental need for a secure safe and interoperable internet that is constantly functioning and accessible to everybody and that's why uh, Joe Biden when he brought together uh, and it was in the end being 60 countries and partners on the declaration for the future of the internet was a big step forward. And that provision of ensuring the internet doesn't just mean about, you know, it also involves hardware. This is where one of the big questions about kind of uh, semiconductors and the chips war that we're seeing going on. So it's also the check, it's a regulatory policy, it's a security policy to make sure that everyone has that access to the internet that is so fundamental to everybody's livelihoods and well-being globally. So what we've sort of posted in the paper is a kind of NATO for the Internet design, with the the Internet being the thing that needs to be protected. And, And thinking about how countries could, you know, who are part of that coalition, and and that includes countries that we don't naturally think of. So there's a big split, if you want, and the, the term like-minded and not like-minded. And I don't particularly like it in this sort of term because I think everybody needs to have the access to the global free interoperable Internet. So I find the countries that want to be part of this coalition that uh, are enabled by this, would have some sort of backup some sort of almost like an an article five backup if something happens to the internet that somebody else has got their back now of course that somebody else getting their back because of the nature of how the internet is constructed today means that you have to have that conversation with the tech companies as part of that paradigm. So I think that that's one element that's really important. The other element that we talk about is that how countries across the world need to build a tech forward foreign policy. And that is a lot of uh, foreign policy capacity still doesn't fully understand all the aspects of the tech ecosystem. And by doing that, they're losing sometimes sight of key areas where there's pressure in the system, particularly when there's negotiations and what are quite obscure things like internet standards, but do have the potential to fragment the internet. So there's a good big part of how capacity building within um tech within countries need to be built to understand the tech better and also how we can enable that to then have greater coordination but most importantly it's putting not the tech companies funds and center and not countries and center but actually the internet funds and center that needs to be accessible to all.
0: Thank you for that. I, I was wondering so you, you mentioned there like-minded and not like-minded states or the thought that some states are not going to want to participate in this NATO for the internet is that going to be a problem do you think I mean how do you envision I I would assume perhaps somewhere like Russia isn't going to want to join in will it be that only some countries have this protected access then to the internet or do you see it as a kind of thing that we owe to all global citizens that they have access to the internet and so one ought to intervene if say a country decides to shut its citizens off from the internet or would you be seeing it very much as only supporting as a kind of Collective support group for those states that wish to preserve the internet for their citizens?
1: What's the thinking there? That now, it's, that's a really, really interesting set of questions. And it's one sort of one that we've seen very actively recently. If we think about sort of how Iran has shut down and the sort of increasing use of internet shutdowns as a means of political power, and how there was discussion actually between the US government and Stalin and thinking about how. Uh, could there be an alternative way to provide um, internet uh, for people again because it's not just about information it's also about their businesses and their uh, livelihoods and uh, being able to access health records and all sorts of elements of daily life but it's one of the and there's a bigger question of internet fragmentation and particularly this sort of ideological uh, sort of push and pull that's underpinning the politics of the internet at the moment but I think part of where we look at this digital infrastructure defense alliance is particularly for countries that are hitting a tension point that perhaps their internet uh, infrastructure is built on perhaps Chinese infrastructure, which would give them allegiance to one country. But perhaps philosophically, uh, their interests don't necessarily align with China. And how would they be able to gain some autonomy back within whether it's voting in standards bodies or voting on key issues, tech or non-tech related, that they may feel constrained not to be able to vote according to their interests because of how their tech infrastructure or tech supply chain is constructed. And whether that by providing kind of an underwriting guarantee that says, if anything were to happen to your supply, we would be able to come in and make sure that you're not cut off that you are able to still access all the beneficial aspects of the internet that keep your country going
0: thank you melanie for everything we've discussed today about what's going on with global technology and the ukraine war and what tech companies and states should do in future to coordinate better responses we've been looking at dr melanie garth's paper for the tony blair institute for global change Co authored with Pete Furlong. It's entitled Disruptors and Defenders What the Ukraine War Has Taught Us About the Power of Global Tech Companies. As ever, the details are in the show notes for this episode, which also include a link to the paper. Next week, we are looking at the role of the UK's constitutional watchdogs with Professor Robert Hazel and Sir Peter Riddle from the UCL uh, Constitution Unit. Remember to make sure you don't miss out on that or future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All that you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google, Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was researched by Connor Kelly and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Banham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.